2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for the uh, chance to be in your house tonight. It is good to have this opportunity. I pray that we would take advantage of this, that we would use it uh, to advance our walk with you. God, that you would help us to be what we're supposed to be. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight I'm going to spend just a couple of moments in review because of how all of these sermons do tie in together at the conclusion. And I want us to be aware of all this as we make our way to the end so that hopefully this will have as much of an impact as possible. I know that last week was kind of a down week and maybe it felt like we were walking in knee-high mud. I don't know. Uh, It just for me felt like it was kind of a rough service, so uh, you may not have felt that way. Uh, after church, Brother Mike came to me and said, thanks for the nap. So I, I detected, that's what you said. Don't act like you didn't say it. That's what he said. So I, I detect that last week was a little bit rough. But nonetheless, we're going to go through this so that hopefully, again, this will have the most impact possible at the conclusion. But it was a couple of weeks ago that we watched as the Apostle Paul in writing to the believers of Corinth Uh, begged with them that they would live in such a way that they would not be the recipients of God's grace in vain. He said you want to live in such a way that it doesn't look as though the grace that you've been the recipient of has no point, has no value, has no merit. And, And I tried to remind us then that you and I should be living in such a way that God's grace reveals a purpose in our lives that God's grace has actually accomplished something in our lives. He went on to say in verse number three that we're not supposed to give any offense in anything, that there is nothing about our lives that should be a stumbling block to those who would look at our lives, and our lives should be such that we could not be blamed or mocked or scorned. And that's important because today so many professing Christians have such a poor testimony. The way that they choose to live their lives really is a stumbling block to so many. And then the fact that they profess to be saved, it just brings about ridicule, it brings about scorn, it brings about the mocking. And so there is a need for us to live in such a way that that, that we would not be a stumbling block to anyone who would see us. So in verse number four, he said, "...in all things approving ourselves as ministers of God." You and I, I want us to hear this, you and I should be working to prove that we are servants of God. If we are children of God, that should be a concern of ours to be able to prove and to establish to others that we are his servants. And as I said then, I'm just going to say again very quickly that you and I do not accomplish that by talking about it. We can talk all we want about being a servant of God But until we do what is necessary, that will not be established. And so two weeks ago, we began looking in verses 5 and 6, and we watched, and and I'm just going to summarize this. Paul said, in order to establish yourself as a minister, as a servant of the Lord, you've got to be willing to endure even when it's difficult, even when it's tough. 
There is a need for us in the midst of the physical elements, in the midst of the emotional struggles, in the midst of the mental battles. There is a need for you and I to endure if we want to establish ourselves as servants of God. So many people are willing to do this until it gets difficult, and then they fade, and then they fizzle, and then they drop out, and then they can't figure out why their testimony isn't taken serious. Well, that has something to do with it not enduring in the midst of the difficult days. And then he said this, in the midst of the busy and crazy days, you have to stay faithful. And so many times people use the busyness of life and the hecticness of life as an excuse for not being faithful, as if that were a valid excuse in the eyes of God. And so if we're going to to use the schedule as an excuse, the craziness of life, then we've got to know we'll never establish ourselves as servants of God. He went on to say, as we looked at last week in verses 7 and 8, that if we're going to have this, or in verses 6 and 7 rather, if we're going to have this testimony, there has to be a pureness about our lives. We have to be above reproach. We really do. We have to strive to live in such a way that we are above reproach. We've got to have some kind of a working knowledge of the Word of God and a willingness to stick to it. A lot of people who attend church or who identify themselves as Christians, they know nothing of the Word of God, or they compromise it, and they can't figure out why they're not taken serious. This is all very important, and we need to be reminded of this. It had to do with kindness, or it still has to do with kindness, our compassion and our good works toward others. It's you and I being able to see what God has done in our lives in the past and what God is doing in our lives today. That is evidence to to you and I being servants of God. If we can't identify what God has done and what God is doing, there's something wrong with our testimony. He also talked about how we need to be involved in the fight because there's a spiritual battle that needs to be waged. You and I need to be involved in the spiritual battle. There are so many people, and and I, I know this is going to seem like a long review, but there's a point to it. There are so many people who identify themselves as Christians, and they absolutely are not engaged in the spiritual fight. So many things are going on around them that they could take a stand for. They could be that light in the darkness. They could be that salt that they've been called to be. But they're just not going to do it because it would cause uh, too many ripples in the waves or too many ripples in the water, whatever you'd like to call it. They're, They're just not going to do it because it would not be convenient for them. And yet they want to to profess that they're a servant of God. You and I have to be involved in the spiritual battle if we want to be taken serious. So that's a month's worth of sermons in a nutshell. I think we did good. Anyways, tonight we're going to finish up this little three-part mini-series inside chapter 6. And as we do, I want to share just a quick thought with you. I know that most of you know this, but for those who may not, just there's a little information that you don't need to keep. You know that Susie and I and our family, we live on Duncan Street, right? Okay, you, you know that, that we live on Duncan Street. And as a result of living on Duncan Street, we get more traffic than the average street is going to get just because of the nature of the street and how people use it. And so you would understand this, that 
as a result of living on Duncan Street, you kind of grow immune to all the traffic going by. Because if you let all the traffic bother you, then, then you're going to be very bothered. And, and if you're outside and you try to be friendly to everybody who drives by, well, you'll just wave nonstop and not get anything done, and you'll look like a dork, okay? It's just you have to get to the point where you don't really pay attention to all the traffic. Now, that in mind, like most of you, if I'm in my yard or if I'm in the front of my house, I've usually got a project going on. I might be cleaning out a car. I might be trimming shrubs. I might be mowing the yard. I could be doing several different things. But again, like you, this would be true of me. If I'm involved in a project, that is where my mind is at and not on who might be driving by. Does this make sense? Okay, I thought it would, so it, it, it makes sense. So a couple of months ago, I was mowing the front yard. Now let me ask you something. How many of you who mow, how many of you would say that that is one of the highlights of your week? Like you're thinking to myself, or thinking to yourself, is it mowing day yet? Is that how you feel about it? Okay, that's not how I feel about it either, okay? It's not one of the most jolly of occasions at our house to go out and mow the yard. It is strictly done out of necessity. Okay. So a couple of months ago, I'm in my front yard. I'm immune to all the traffic going by. I'm mowing my yard, and because of how it's worked, it's late, and I'm trying to beat the clock, so to speak, before the sun goes down. So I'm trying to hurry. So I'm hurrying, involved in a project that isn't real fun in and of itself. I'm not paying attention to the cars. I get done. I put everything up. No big deal. And Susie, a couple of days later, runs into someone who passed me while I was mowing my yard. And you know what the man said to Susie in all seriousness? He looked mad. Susie said he, he looked mad? Yeah, he looked mad. I don't know what was going on, but he looked upset. He looked mad. Well, Susie was somewhat taken aback by that comment, and when she came home, she told me that this person had passed and, and said that I looked mad, and, and so it just so happened that a couple of days later, I was able to have a texting conversation with this individual that they initiated, and I threw in there just to let them know uh, I wasn't mad. I was just mowing the yard. I was just in a hurry, trying to get it done. I wasn't mad. Again, like most people, I don't walk around with my mower with a huge smile on my face thinking, isn't this great? In the response that I got from him, it basically came back this, yeah, you looked upset. And I thought, whatever. I wasn't mad. I'm getting mad, but I wasn't mad. I know what was going on. Susie and I weren't fussing. We, we weren't upset at the kids. There was nothing going on. I was just trying to mow the yard. Now, why do I tell you that? I tell you that for this reason. You know what he did? He just threw something on the wall to see if it would stick. 
There was no basis for it whatsoever. There was no validity to it whatsoever. He decided I looked mad, so guess what? I was mad. Didn't matter that I told him I wasn't. I was. Completely baseless, completely unsubstantiated, but he still threw it out there because he wanted to. Why would somebody do that? Who knows? But he did. And as I thought about that, here's what I realized. That's been going on for thousands of years. Just throwing things out there, seeing if it will stick, and seeing what kind of an effect it will have on somebody. How do we know? Well, look in the last part of verse number 8 tonight. As we make our way through this text, here's what I think we're going to see. I think we're going to see that Paul is giving an abbreviated list of some things that have been thrown out there against him by people to see if it'll stick. Like, like we're just going to accuse the Apostle Paul and others of these things and, and just see if it sticks. And, and for everything that has been brought against the Apostle Paul, he's going to give what I think is a quick rebuttal or argument to everything. And, and I find this kind of interesting, and I think it'll be a help to us tonight if, if we give attention to it. So notice in the last part of verse number 8, he says this, as deceivers and yet true. As deceivers and yet true. Here is what we already know from this study of Second Corinthians, that there were people who had called into question the integrity and the honesty of the Apostle Paul. And so it seems as though Paul is building upon that just a little bit. He's bringing it up once more. He's talking about it again. But it's like he is saying to those readers there in Corinth, the believers, it's like he is saying this, that over the years, here's what I've been accused of, of being a deceiver of people by what I teach and what I preach and what I present to those who would, would listen to what I have to say. And, and as a result of that being the way that Paul was painted, as a result of those who would try to paint him in this light, here is what Paul said that was actually the truth. He said, as deceivers and yet true. See, I don't think Paul was acknowledging that there was a time in his life, post-Christianity, post-salvation, that, that he struggled with deception, that he struggled with false teachings, that he struggled with leading people astray. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think what he is saying is this, is listen, I've been accused of deceiving people, but in fact what I have done is I have presented them over and over and over, I have presented to them the truth of the Word of God. Now, now, this may seem pointless, but I promise you it's not. There has been, over the course of his ministry, this attack on his honesty and his integrity. And he says, though I've been accused of being a deceiver, I've actually been one to tell people the truth, to be honest, to be straightforward and direct with them. He says in verse number 9, as unknown and yet well-known. As unknown and yet well-known. What does it mean to be unknown or known? Well, this is dealing with the person's level of recognition. And so what it seems to be is that there are some who are saying of the Apostle Paul 
that he's just an unknown individual and he is an insignificant person. And many times that's what people have to do, is it not, if they want to try to discredit what somebody else is accomplishing? You have to minimize it and you have to put it down and you have to belittle it. Have you ever known that to happen? Oh, well, what they're doing, it's no big deal. It's not important. It's not anything that matters to anybody. Okay, so there would be some who would have said of the Apostle Paul, man, he's not even well known. People don't even know anything about him, what he's doing, what he's accomplishing. And I don't think the Apostle Paul is bragging on himself. I don't think he's, he's trying to build himself up. But I think he knows this, that in the realm of Christianity, he had established somewhat of a name for himself. As he had traveled, as he had preached, as he had presented the gospel, he knew that he was not some nameless, faceless individual. But again, people who wanted to discredit his ministry, just throwing things out there, hoping that it would stick and somehow mar the testimony of the Apostle Paul. So he says, I've been accused of deception. That's not true. People have said, I am unknown. Well, that's not exactly true either. Notice what he said next. He said, as dying... And behold, we live. As dying, and behold, we live. What does it mean to be dying? It means to be dying. Like, Paul's getting old. And he just doesn't have it like he once had it. You know, he's getting old and, and, and he's just going the way of, of old age and, and he doesn't have the strength and he doesn't have the energy. And, and the Apostle Paul would not suggest that he wasn't aging. He wasn't going to suggest that, that, that the miles weren't racking up on him. But it's interesting, in light of the, the accusation, so to speak, of him getting old and, and dying and, and no longer maybe effective like he once was, he said, Behold, we live. What does it mean to live? means like, don't worry, I'm still alive. The word actually has to do with or carries the idea of, of some zeal and, and some, some vigor and, and some pep in the steps, so to speak. The Apostle Paul is basically saying this, listen, I've been accused of dying and getting old and slowing down. That wasn't true either. So I'm not a deceiver. I'm not this unknown, nameless, faceless individual, and I'm not dying. And he says, this has also been said of me as chastened and not killed. What does it mean to be chastened? It just means this, to be chastised. So it's like some were saying that some of the things that the Apostle Paul had gone through was a result of the chastisement of God. It's fun to say, is it not? If somebody's going through a hard time, if somebody's going through a difficult time, well, it must be the chastisement of God on their life. There's obviously sin in his life. If that's what he's dealing with, if that's what he's going through, that's, that's obviously the result of God's chastisement. But he says in verse number 9, listen, as, as though I've been accused or, or as a result of being accused of being chastened, he said, and not killed. Well, what does that mean? It just means this. It's not destroyed me. So in the midst of all this, I'm still doing okay, so to speak. It, it hasn't destroyed me. It hasn't overwhelmed me. It hasn't overtaken me. So he's throwing out, again, I, I want us to keep up with this. I've been accused of deception. I've been accused of being unknown. I've been accused of, being, uh, of dying. I've been accused of being chastened by the Lord. He says in verse number 10, as sorrowful. 
What does it mean to be accused, be accused of being sorrowful? It means of, of being heavy, of being sad, of being grieved. Do you think the Apostle Paul ever had rough days where he, he struggled with sadness and grief and, and being overwhelmed at times? Well, probably. I mean, I think he was a normal man who would have struggled with different emotions. But you would also agree that if that's the way you approach your ministry every day, uh, there's not a great appeal to that. So while the Apostle Paul no doubt had days of sorrow, while he no doubt had days of difficulty, that is not what would have defined his nature or his personality or his spirit. So he says, I've been accused of being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There was a measure of gladness about the Apostle Paul. There would have been a measure in, in the, the life of the Apostle Paul that simply enjoyed life and enjoyed the ministry that God had given him. So this accusation of being sorrowful, he said, well, really the truth is, yet always rejoicing, I'm a pretty happy man. Notice in verse number 10 he said this, as poor. What does it mean to be poor? It means to be destitute or to be without. Was that true of the Apostle Paul? From an earthly standpoint, it was. From an earthly standpoint, Paul was not rich. He was not financially secure. He was not, not financially taken care of. But yet, what the Apostle Paul was worried about was not the treasures on earth, but he says, you know, I, I may have been poor, yet making many rich. That wasn't because of his pyramid scheme. What he's talking about is this, is I may not be able to offer much by way of earthly possessions and earthly goods, but because of the ministry that I've been a part of, I have been with the truth of God's Word, with the, the treasures of God's Word. I've been able to enrich the lives of many. So here's this accusation thrown at him. You know, he's just a poor old preacher, and the Apostle Paul wouldn't argue that. But he would say, you know, in my poverty and in my, in my destitute condition, I've been able to help so many by way of some spiritual riches and then finally he said in verse number 10, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. As a result of his poor status, as a result of his lack of financial wealth, as a result of his lack of abundance, there could be people who would say things like this. You know, Paul doesn't have anything to which Paul would say, hey, you're right. But you know what? I've got everything I need. I mean, he says it right there as having nothing, yet possessing all things. I've got everything I need. Well, Paul, what do you have? I think he'd say things like this. Well, you know, I've got my salvation. I've got the, the working of the Holy Spirit in my life. I've got his leadership. I, I know I'm living in obedience to the will of God for my life. I think he would look back and say this. I know that heaven is my home. You know, I know that whenever I leave, I'm going to make an incredible transition from this life into the next life where I'll lay all my burdens down. We talked about that a few months ago. So Paul says, you know, I've been accused of not having anything. And, and while I may not have a lot of what this world has to offer, I've got everything I need. So some of what's been thrown at Paul by way of accusations, again, is just this. 
You're deceptive. You're unknown. You died or you're dying. This is all the result of God's chastisement in your life. You're a miserable individual to be around. You're poor and you have nothing. And Paul basically refutes every bit of that and says, you know what, none of it's true. Kind of like me saying, listen, I wasn't mad. I was just trying to mow the yard. What you've said, it's just not accurate. This would be the truth of my life and how my life's been lived. This is what it really is. Now with 8, 9, and 10 all taken into consideration, let's remember the grander scheme of all this, the grander point of all this, and that is what? Establish your testimony. Right? Establish your testimony. That is the greater, grander scheme and, and, and point of all these verses so notice what he said in verse number 8 before he went into all these different things that he has dealt with by way of accusation. Here's how you establish yourself besides enduring, besides being faithful, besides being above reproach and all these things. Here are some other ways in which you establish yourself, Paul says, by or through honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. Whenever Paul speaks of honor, whenever Paul speaks of a good report, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about whenever a person is praised. Whenever a person has their praises sung by someone else. When somebody says something good, when somebody says something positive, when, when somebody says something that would be appreciated by the individual who's having it said of them. How many of us have ever been honored or how many of us have ever had a good report said about us? It's happened for most of us, right? That somebody has said something good about us. Let me ask you something. In those moments, is it very hard to maintain your testimony? Not usually. Uh, you know, if somebody is saying nice words about me and to me, that's usually not when I'm struggling with my attitude. Unless it's pride and ego. Okay? So I understand that that could kick in a little bit, but I'm just saying, in the midst of somebody speaking well about me, in the midst of somebody speaking good about me, that's not usually when I struggle the most. But he said, you also establish your testimony in this. Through the dishonor and through the evil report. What does it mean to be dishonored or to have an evil report? It just means this, for there to be negative things said about you, for there to be defamation against you, where people are just saying things, where people are just poorly speaking of who you are, you know, just kind of taking your name and running it through the mud. Paul knew something about that. How do you establish your testimony when your name is being dishonored and when there is an evil report being given of who you are? How do you establish your testimony? Well, it's very simple, and yet it can be very difficult. It's in how the person responds 
to the lies and to the things that are being said about them. Go back to my little story, as simple and as silly as it is. Where was my struggle? My struggle was in someone saying something that I knew wasn't true about me. I was struggling to not get mad. I was struggling to not get defensive. I was struggling to not want to say some some fairly harsh things to the person who had made the accusation. But if I want to establish a testimony, then what I've got to do is in the midst of the dishonor, in the midst of the evil report, in the midst of somebody just throwing something out there against me, I have got to respond appropriately or I am going to damage the reputation I'm trying to establish for myself. Here's Paul. Say, you've already done this. I know, just think about it. He's a deceiver. No, I'm not. He tells people lies. No, I don't. I don't. He's unknown. Actually, I'm not. He's always angry. He's always upset. Well, no, really, I'm not. I'm actually a person of joy. Part of establishing himself was responding correctly to the wrong, dishonest allegations brought against him over the course of his life. Now, this evening, I want you to think about something. Again, very simple, very basic, but I want us to think about this. Do people in your life have the ability to say whatever they want to say about you? They do, don't they? See, for Paul, he lists a few of what was said about him. Deceiver, dying, chastised, all these other things. These are just things that appear to be thrown at him by way of accusation. So what could be said about you? The answer is anything. Is that right? Work with me just a little bit, all right? You know this, I know this, anything can be said by anyone at any time about us. And if it's not true, what are we going to struggle with? Our name being lied about. If somebody says this about me, I know what my struggle is going to be. If somebody says this about my family, I know what my struggle is going to be. And I think if you're honest, you would have to admit that you would have the same struggle because you don't want to be lied about. But part of what establishes our relation or our, our testimony, part of what establishes the testimony that we want to have in the eyes of the world is when we respond appropriately to whatever the accusations may be. And that's a challenge. 
it helps us respond appropriately when we know what the truth is. Somebody says, you're a jerk. I'm not saying I've never been a jerk, but I will say this. I wasn't in that situation. Well, you're a liar. Well, I'm not saying I've never lied, but I know the truth, and in this, I did not lie. You're a cheat. I'm not saying I've never taken advantage of someone, but I am saying, uh, no, I didn't cheat you or anybody else in that situation. We have a better chance of responding better when we know what really happened, when we know that what they're saying is not true. But to try to tie all this together, and I hope this is a help. If it's not, truly, I apologize. But to try to tie all this together, think about this, that it is easier for the accusations to not stick if we've been diligent to do what we looked at the last two weeks. Does that make sense? If you and I have been diligent to just be faithful, it makes the crazy accusations have a much harder time to stick against us when people make the accusations. When people know that we're faithful, when people know that we're serious, when people know that we're committed to the things of God, when somebody says something crazy about us, there is a far less chance that that accusation will stick. But friends, if we're not faithful and if we're not diligent and we're not enduring, you know what? It makes it a whole lot easier for other people to believe the negative about us rather than to assume the best of us. We've got to be diligent in trying to live above reproach. Because if you and I are diligent to live in such a way that, that nothing can be said about us, then I know this is obvious, but then when the accusations come, people say, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, there's no way that they would do whatever it is they've been accused of. If we're working hard at establishing our testimony, then here's what we'll be, among other things. We'll be patient and we'll be kind. And it makes it more difficult for the accusation to stick. If you and I genuinely love people, like we talked about last week, if we genuinely love people because of our genuine love for God, then whatever crazy things people come up with, it is that much more difficult for anybody to take it serious. I think this happens sometimes. That wild accusations are made. And people don't like the accusations that are made against them. But the problem is, is they live in such a way that it's just too easy to believe what's being said about them. They haven't really worried about not being a stumbling block. They haven't really worried about not being that source of mocking and ridicule. 
They've not really lived it. They've talked it, but they've not really done it. And so when the crazy accusations come, it's just so easy for others to believe because they've never really established themselves, that individual, as being a servant of the Lord like they're supposed to. And so I'm saying to us tonight, maybe as convoluted as it might be, I'm saying to you and I tonight, the accusations are going to come. They will. Somebody is not going to like us. Somebody's going to be cross with us. Somebody is going to, to throw out the accusations at some point of some nature. If you don't want them to stick, if I don't want them to stick, then I must take serious establishing my testimony. I ask us tonight, you may say, Brother Kyle, it doesn't even need to be asked. Oh, yes, it does. Are we working on our testimony the way that we ought? Are we working on the testimony that we have in the way that we ought? For those who know us, for those who have interaction with us, are we doing everything we can to establish and to prove that we are the ministers of God that we've been called to be? We ought to consider it. All right? Let's all stand tonight and bow our heads for prayer. Fathers, we come to you this evening. I pray that you'd help us to just be honest. We know whether or not we're really too worried about our testimony. We know whether or not we're too worried about establishing that testimony in the eyes of others. We know whether or not it's talk or if it's action. We know that the accusations have much of a chance to stick or not. We know if we'll just be honest before you. God, if there's anyone in here tonight who, who would have to say it's, it's not been an effort, it's not been a concern, pray that tonight would be the night they address it and begin working on it with your help. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.